Hello, this is Eric Topol, and it's really a delight for me to welcome uh, Hannah Davis, uh, who was the primary author of our recent review on long COVID and is a co-founder of the Patient-Led Research Collaborative. And we're going to get into some really uh, important topics uh, about citizen science, uh, long COVID, and related matters. So, Hannah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Hannah, before we get into it, um, I thought because you had a very interesting background before you got into the patient-led organization with uh, graphics and AI and data science, maybe you could tell us a bit about that. Sure. Yeah. Before I got sick, I was working in machine learning um, with a particular focus on generative models for art and music. Um, so I did some projects like translating um data sets of landscapes into emotional landscapes. I did a project called The Laughing Room where there was a room and you went in and the room would listen to you and laugh if it thought you said something funny. Um, and then I did a lot of generative music based on sentiment. So I, I did a big project where I was generating music from um, the sentiment of novels and a lot of kind of like critical projects looking at biases in data sets and also curating data sets to create desired outcomes in these generative models. So, I mean, in a way, uh, again, you were ahead of your time because uh, that was before ChatGPT in November uh, last year, and you were ahead of the generative AI curve. And here again, you're uh, way ahead in uh, in the citizen science era uh, as it particularly relates to the pandemic. So I, I wonder uh, if you could just tell us a bit um, I think it was back, we go back to March 2020. Is that when you were hit with COVID? Yes. And um, when did you realize that it wasn't just an acute phase illness? Um, for me, honestly, I was not worried at all. I My first symptom was that I couldn't parse a text message. I just couldn't read it. Thought I was tired. Um, an hour later, took my temperature, realized I had a fever. So that's when I kind of knew I was sick. Um, but I really just truly believed the narrative. I was going to get better. I was 32 at the time. I had no pre-existing conditions. I just was, you know, laying around um, doing music stuff, not concerned at all. And I put a calendar note to donate plasma two weeks out. And I was like, you know, I'm going to hit that mark. I'm going to go do donate plasma, contribute. It'll be fine. And that day came and went. I was still, you know, pretty sick. Um, with a mild case, you know, I didn't have to be hospitalized. I didn't have severe respiratory symptoms, um, but my neurological symptoms were substantial and did increase kind of over time. And so I, I was getting concerned. Three weeks went by, still wasn't better. And then I read Fiona Lowenstein's op-ed in the New York Times. Um, they were also very young. They were 26 at the time. They had been hospitalized and they had this prolonged recovery, which we now know as long covid um, and they started the body politic support group, joined that, saw thousands of people with the same kind of debilitating brain fog, the same complete um, executive functioning loss, inability to drive, forgetting your family members' names, um, who were all extremely young, who all had mild cases. Um, and that's kind of when I got concerned because I realized, you know, this was not just happening to me. This was happening to so many people and no one understood what was happening. Right. Uh, extraordinary and and was a precursor foreshadowing of what was to come. Now, here it is well over three years later. 
and you're still affected by all this, right? Yes, pretty severely. Yeah. And um, I learned about that when I had the chance to work with you on the review. You were the main driver of this review. And I remember asking you, because I, I didn't know anyone in the world that was tracking long COVID like you, and uh, to, to be the primary author. And then you sent this outline. And I had never seen an outline in all my years in academic medicine. I never saw an outline like this of the review. I said, oh, my God, this is incredible. So I know that during that time when we worked on the review together, along with Lisa McCorkle and, and Julia Amor Vogel, that, you know, there, there were times when you couldn't work on it, right? There, there Absolutely. Just, you have some good days or bad days and, and that's the kind of is that kind of the way it, it it goes in any given unit time i think generally i i communicate it as like 40 percent of my function is gone so like i used to be able to have very very full days 12 hour days would work would socialize would do music whatever um you know i i have solidly four functional hours a day um, on a good day, maybe that will be six. On a bad day, that's zero. And when I push myself by accident, I can get into a crash that can be three to seven days easily. Mm. Um, and then I'm then I'm just not, you know, able to be present. I don't feel here. I don't feel cognitively um, able. I can't drive. And then I'm just completely out of the world for a bit of time. Yeah. Wow. So back in uh, the early days of when you were sick, uh, first got sick and realized that this was not going to just go away. You worked with others to form this patient-led um, organization. And here you are, you didn't have a, a, a medical background. You certainly had a, a data science and um, computing background. But um, what were your thoughts? I mean, citizen science has taken on more of a life in recent years, certainly in the last decade. And here, there's a group of you that are kind of been leading the charge. Uh, we'll get to, you know, working with Recover and NIH in just a moment. But uh, what were your thoughts as to whether this could have an impact uh, working with these the other co-founders? I think at first we really didn't realize how much of an impact we were going to have. Um, the The reason we started collecting data in the first place really was to get answers for ourselves as patients. You know, we saw all these kind of anecdotes happening in the support group. We wanted to get a sense of like which were happening the most, at what frequency, et cetera. Um, and it really wasn't until after that when like the CDC and WHO started reaching out, asking for that data, which was gray literature at the time, um, that we kind of realized we needed to formalize this and, and put out a, a official paper, um, which was what ended up being the second paper. But the the group that we formed really is magical. I think like because the primary um, motivator to join the group was um, you know being sick and wanting to understand what was happening, and because everyone in the group only has the kind of shared experience of of living with long COVID. We ended up with a very, very diverse group, many, many different skill sets. Um, and I think that really contributed to our success in both creating this data, but also communicating and, and doing uh, actionable policy and advocacy work with it. Did you know the folks before or did you all come together because of digital synapses? Digital synapses. I love that. <laughs> Absolutely. No, we didn't know each other at all. Um, 
they're wow. now all you know they're my best friends by far um yeah. you know we've been through this this huge thing together um but no we didn't meet in person until just last september actually and many of them we still haven't even met in person um which makes it even more magical to me well, that's actually pretty extraordinary so together you've built a formidable force to stand up for the millions and millions of people um you know as you wrote in the review, 65 million people around the world who are suffering in one way or another from long COVID. So uh, just to comment about the review, um, you know, I've been working in writing papers for too long, 35 years. I've never in my entire career, over 1300 peer reviewed papers on varied topics, ever had one that's already had 900,000 downloads is the fourth most um, cited paper um, and alt metric since um, published the same time frame in January of all 500,000 papers. Did you ever think that the, the work that that you did and and our you know along with Lisa and Julie and I would ever have this type of uh, level of interest? No, and I, honestly, it's so encouraging. Our, our second paper to me did very well um, and, you know, was, was widely viewed and widely cited. And this one just surpassed that um, by miles. And I think that it's encouraging because it communicates that, that people are interested, right? People, even if they don't understand what long COVID is, there is a huge desire to know. And I think that putting this out in this form, focusing on the biomedical side of things um, really gives people a, a tool to start to understand it. And from the patient side of things, more than any other paper I've heard, uh, we, we get so many comments that are like, oh, I brought this to my doctor and, you know, the course of my care changed. Like, like he believed me, uh, he started X treatment. Um, and that that's the kind of stuff that just makes us so, so meaningful. Um, and I'm so, so grateful that, that we were able to do this. Yeah. And as you aptly put it, you know, a work of love and it was not easy because the reviewers were not, um, not all of them were supportive about the, uh, the real impact, the profound uh, uh, impact of long COVID. So when you um, now every day, you're keeping track of what's going on in this field and there's something every single day. Um, one of the things, of course, is that we haven't really seen a validated treatment all this time. And you've put together uh, a list of candidates. Of course, it was in the review and it constantly gets revised. What are some of the things that you think are uh, alluring from preliminary data or mechanisms that might be the greatest unmet need right now of, of getting uh, some relief, some remedy for this? What, what, what's your sense about that? I think the one I'm most excited about right now are JAK-STAT inhibitors. And this is because one of the leading researchers in viral onset illness, um, Ron Davis and, and um, Rob Fair and, and that group, um, believe that basically they have the acatinate shunt hypothesis. And that means they, they basically think there's a switch that happens in the body um, after you've you've had a viral illness like this and that that switch can actually be unswitched. And that to me as a patient, that's very exciting because, you know, that, that's what I imagine a cure kind of looks like. Um, and they did some 
computational modeling and, and identified JAK uh, stat inhibitors as one of the promising candidates. Um, so that's from like the like uh, hypothetical side that needs to be tested. And then from the patient community, from some things we're seeing, um, I think really easily accessed ones include um, cotodafin and cromelin sodium. So these are prescription antihistamines. Um, they're both systemic. So um, cotodafin has been seeming to work for patients with brain fog and um, sleep disorders, and cromelin sodium particularly works in, in patients with gastrointestinal mast cell issues. Um, natokinase, which is uh, the, the kind of supplement um, blood thinner, which people are going on to kind of address the microclots. Um, I, for me personally, has been one of the biggest changers, um, game changers for my brain fog and kind of um, cognitive impairment type things. Um, but there's so many others. I mean, I think we, we really want to see trials of anticoagulants. Um, I'm personally really excited to start on Evoberdine, um, which which is next up in my queue and, and seems to have been a, a game changer for a lot of patients too. Um, IVIG has worked for patients who are have been able to get it. I think for both IVIG and Evoberdine, those are medications that are challenging to get covered by insurance. And so we're seeing a lot of those difficulties um, in, in access uh, with a couple of these meds. But um, yeah, just part of, part of the battle, I guess. You know, one of the leading of many mechanisms that in this mosaic of long COVID is the persistence of virus or virus components. And there have been uh, at least some attempts to get some uh, Paxlovid trials going do you see any hope uh, for just dealing, trying to inactivate the virus as, as a way forward? Absolutely. Definitely believe in the viral persistence theory. Um, I think not only Paxlovid, but um, other COVID antivirals. I know that Steve Deeks and Michael Peluso at UCSF um, are starting a couple long COVID trials with um, other COVID antivirals uh, that, yeah, for sure. I think they all obviously need to be trialed ASAP. And then I also think on the viral persistence um, lens, er, like almost everyone I know has viral reactivation of some sort, um, like EBV, CMV, HHV6, uh, VZV. You know, we obviously see a lot of chickenpox or shingles um, reactivations and um, antivirals targeting those as well, um, I think are really important. Yeah. Well, and I also just the way you're coming out with a lot of this you know, um, terminology and, you know, uh, science stuff like IVIG for intravenous immunoglobulin. And for those who are not, you know, facile, just remember, this is a non-life science, life science expert who now has become one. And that goes back again to the review, which was this hybrid of people who had long COVID with me who didn't, uh, to try to come up with the right kind of balance as to, you know, what synthesizing what, what we know. And I think this is something the medical profession has never truly understood is getting people who are actually affected and, and becoming, you know, the real experts. I mean, I, I look to you as one of the world's leading authorities and I learn from you all the time. So um, that goes to recover. So there was a long delay in the U.S. to recognize the importance of long COVID. Even the UK was talking to patients well before they ever had a meeting 
here in the U.S., but eventually, somehow or other, they allocated a billion dollars towards long COVID research at the NIH. And uh, originally, you know, fortunately, Francis Collins, when he was director, saw the importance. And he, I learned, bequeathed that to two um, NIH um, institutes. One of the directors, Gary Gibbons, visited me recently because of a comment I made about Recover. But before I go over my comment, you've been, uh, as he said, you, you, Lisa, others from the patient-led collaborative have had a seat at the table. That's a quote. Can you tell us your impression about Recover, um, you know, in terms of at least they are including um, patient-led research folks uh, with long COVID as to um, are they taking your input seriously? And um, what about the billion dollars? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> tricky question. I don't even know where to start. Well, I mean, so I think Recover really messed up by not putting experts in the field in charge, right? Like we are, we have from the beginning, um, have needed to do medical provider education at the same time that all these studies started getting underway. And that was just a massive amount of work to try to include the right tests to convince medical professionals why they weren't necessary. Um, all that could have been avoided by putting the right people in charge. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, unfortunately, recovers our, our best hope still, um, or at least the, the best funded hope. Um, so I really want to see it succeed. Um, I think that they they have a long way to go in terms of of um, really understanding why patient um, representation matters and and um, patient engagement matters. I you know it's been a couple of years. It's it's still very hard to do engagement with them. Um, it's kind of a gamble when you get placed on a, a committee if they are going to respect you or not. And and that's kind of hard as people, yeah, who are experts now. You know, I've been in the field of long COVID research more than um, anyone really I'm working with there. Um, I, I really hope that they improve the research process, improve the publication process, um, the a lot of the engagement right now is, is just tokenization. Um, you know, they, they have patient reps that are kind of uh, like a couple of the patient reps are kind of yes men. Um, you know, they, they get put on higher kind of positions and things like that. Um, but there, I think there's 57 patient reps in total spread across committees. Um, we don't have a good organizing structure. We don't know who each other are, don't really talk to each other. Um, there, there's room for a lot of improvement, I would say. <laughs> well, I, the way I would put it is, you know, you kind of remember like when you have gatherings where there's an adult table and then there's the kiddies table and the Absolutely. patient folks are at the kiddie table. I mean, yeah. And um, it's really unfortunate. So they had their first kind of major publication last week and uh, it's led to all sorts of confusion. Um, you wrote about it. What 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 did we what did we glean from that from that paper that uh, was reported um, as ten percent of people with COVID go on to long COVID and there were uh, clearly a risk with reinfections? Um, can you kind of uh, review that and also what have we seen with respect to the different strains uh, as we go on from 
from the Wuhan ancestral all the way through to the various lineages of Omicron, has that uh, led to differences in what we've seen with long COVID? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I think a lot of people ask just because it you know speaks to the impact of long COVID on our future. Um, I think not just this paper, but many other papers at this point, also the the ONS data have shown that that long COVID after Omicron is is very common. Um, I think the last ONS data that came out showed of everyone living with long COVID in the UK, 37 or 39 percent had it after Omicron, which was the highest um, the highest group of all of them. Um, we certainly saw that in the support groups also, just just so many people, um, but people are still getting it. I think it's because um, it, it, most cases of long COVID happen after a mild infection, 75 to 90%. And when you get COVID now, it is a mild infection, but whatever the pathophysiology is, it doesn't require severe infection. And, um, you know, where I think we hopefully have seen decreases in like the the pulmonary and the cardiovascular uh, like organ damage types um, we're not seeing real improvements at all um, in kind of the long term in the neurological um, in the ones that end up lasting you know for years and that's really disappointing um, in terms of the paper you know I think there were two parts of the paper there were those those items you mentioned which I think are really meaningful right the the fact that reinfections have a higher rate of long COVID is like ha, needs to have a substantial impact on how we treat COVID going forward. Um, that one in ten people get it after Omicron is something we've been you know shouting for for over a year now, um, and I think this is the first time that will be taken seriously. Um, but at the same time, the way Recover communicated about this paper and the way they talked to the press about this paper shows how little they understand of post-viral history, right, of, of um, like, thinking about a definition, they, they, why wouldn't they know that would upset patients, you know, that, that, and, and the fact that they, in my opinion, um, you know, let patients take the brunt of that anger and upset, um, you know, where they should have been at the forefront, they should have been engaging with the patient community on Twitter, um, is really upsetting as well. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I when I did sit down with Gary Gibbons uh, recently, and he was, in a way, wanting to listen about how could recover, uh, fulfill its goals. And I said, well, firstly, you, you got to communicate and you got to take the people very seriously, uh, not just, uh, as I say, put them at the kiddies table. But, you know, and then really importantly is why isn't there a clinical trial testing any treatment. Still today, not even a single trial has been mounted. There's been some that have been, you know, kind of in the design phase, but still not for the billion dollars. All that's been done is is basically following people with symptoms as already had been done for years previously. So it's, it's uh, so vexing to see this waste and basically uh, confusion that's been um, the main uh, product of recover to date and exemplified by this paper, which is apparently going to go through some correction phases and stuff. I mean, I don't know, but really, uh, you know, whether that's going to change uh, the the two institutes that it's, it's NHLBI, the heart, lung and blood and the neurologic Institute, NINDS, that are the two now in charge of making sure that recover recovers um, from where it's, it's ale right now. And 
Um, yeah, so lack of treatments. And then the first intervention study that was launched, incredibly, was exercise. Can you comment about that? It's unreal. You know, it's it, it just speaks to the lack of understanding the existing research that's in this space. Exercise is not a treatment for people with HEM. It has made people bedbound for life. The risks is are not, the risks are substantial. Um, that there was no discussion about it, that there was no understanding about it, that, you know, even patients who don't have PEM, who wouldn't necessarily be harmed by this trial, deserve better, right? They still deserve a trial on anticoagulants or literally anything else um, than exercise. And there's, it just, it's extremely frustrating to see. It, it would have been so much better if it was led by people who already had the space, who didn't have to be educated in post-exertional malaise and the, the underlying underpinnings of it, um, and just had a sense of, of how to continue forward. And, you know, patients deserve better. And I think we're, we're really struggling because, yeah, there's, there's going to be five trials, as I understand it, and um, that's not enough. And none of them should be behavioral or lifestyle interventions at all. Um, you know, I think it also communicates just the the not understanding how severe this is. And I get that it's hard. I get that when you see patients on the screen, you think that they're fine and that's just how they must look all the time. But Recover doesn't understand that for every hour they're asking patients to engage in something, that's an hour they're in bed, you know, that that they're they take so much time away from patients without really understanding like the, the minimum they should be able to do is, is understand the scope and the severity of the condition and that we need to be trialing substantially more uh, serious mecha- uh, treatments than, than exercise. Um, right. Right. And also the recognition, of course, as you know very well about the subtypes of long COVID. So, you know, for example, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome POTS and how, you know, there's a device. So you don't have to always think about drugs where you put it in the back of your ear and it's neuromodulator to turn down your vagus nerve and not have the dizziness and rapid heart rate when you stand and all the other symptoms. And, you know, it costs like a dollar to make this thing. And why don't you do a trial with that? I mean, that was exactly. one of the things. It doesn't have to always be drugs and it doesn't have to, it certainly shouldn't be exercise. But, um, you know, maybe at some point this will get on, on track, although I'm worried that so much of the billion dollars has already been spent and no less the loss of time here. I mean, people are suffering. Now that gets me to this lack of respect, uh, lack of every single day we are confronted with people who don't even believe there's such a thing as long COVID. After all this time, after all these people who have had their lives profoundly disrupted, what, what can you say about this? It's just a staggering, staggering lack of empathy. And I think it's also fear and a defense mechanism, right? People Mm. want to believe that they have more control over their lives than they do. And they want to believe that, that it's not possible for them personally to get a virus and then never recover and have their life changed so substantially. Um, I really genuinely believe the people who don't believe long COVID is real at this point, um, you know, have their own things going on and um, just, yeah, it's kind of like how COVID was a hoax. And now this is, I mean, you just, 
but it's true. But, like it's happened yeah. with it happened with MECFS. It happened with HIV AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, someone just showed me a brochure of of a a ten week lifestyle exercise um, intervention for AIDS. You know, saying that you could positively think your way out of it. All that is is, is defense mechanism. Just yeah. you know, it, it's repeating the same history over and over. Well, I think you nailed it. And of course, you know, it was perhaps easier with myalgic encephalomyelitis when there weren't as many people affected as the tens of millions here, but to be in denial. Um, The other thing is um, the young people, perfectly healthy, that are those who are the most commonly affected. Uh, A lot of the people who I know who have been hit are like you, you know, very young and, and, you know, uh, like Julia in my group who, you know, was uh, a big runner and, you know, can't even go blocks uh, at times without uh, being breathless. And this is the typical, I mean, I saw in clinic uh, just yesterday, an older fellow who had been in the hospital for a few weeks and has terrible long COVID. And yes, the severity of COVID can correlate with the sequela, but because of just numbers, most people are more your phenotype, right, Hannah? Right, exactly. It's a weird like math thing for people to wrap their head around. Like, yes, if you're hospitalized, the chance of getting long COVID is much, much higher than if you were not hospitalized. But because the vast number of cases were not hospitalized, the vast number of long cases, long COVID cases were not hospitalized. Um, but I think like all of these things are interesting clues into the pathophysiology. You know, we also see people who were hospitalized who recover faster than some of these, the neurocognitive um, mild, my, myalgic encephalomyelitis, dysautonomia subtypes for sure. Um, I think all of that is is really interesting and can point to clues about kind of what is, what is happening um, at the core. Yeah, and that I wanted to get into before we wrap up um, some of the things that are new or added since our review in published in January. Um, so I just recently reviewed the brain and long COVID with um, these two German studies, one of which showed the spike protein was lighting up in the reservoir, the kind of a niche reservoir, the brain, the skull, and the meninges, uh, the, the basically the layers covering the brain. The, particularly the skull bone marrow. And that's where all these immune cells are in high density that are patrolling the brain. And so it really implicated spike protein per se in people who've had COVID. Um, and then the other German study, which was so striking uh, in mild COVID, the majority of people, where they had it 10 months later, all this um, signature uh, by MRI, quantitative MRI of major inflammation. Uh, with free water and this so-called mean diffusivity, which is basically the leaking and, you know, the inflammation of the brain. And so, and that's as long as they followed the people, you know, if they followed them three years, they probably still see this. And so there's a lot of brain inflammation that is linked to the symptoms, as you've described, you know, the brain fog, the memory, executive function. But... <laughs> Uh, we have no remedy. We have no way. How, how can we stop the process? How can we turn it around? Like, as you mentioned, like a JAKSTAT inhibitor and other ways that we desperately need to get into testing. Um, so that was one thing I, I wonder. I mean, I think people who have had the symptoms of cognitive effects um, know there's something going wrong in their brain. But here it is 
you know, kind of living proof that what they're sensing is now you can see it. Uh, thoughts about that? I mean, I think the research is just staggering. It's so, so validating as someone, you know, who was living this and living the severity of it, you know, without research for years. It's, it's wonderful to finally see so many things come out. Um, but it's overwhelming research. And I, I don't understand kind of the lack of urgency. Those are two huge, huge studies with huge implications, um, you know, that the, that the spike would still be in the skull like that, in the, in the bone marrow like that. Um, and the neuroinflammation, I think, you know, feels very obvious in terms of what like the symptoms end up presenting. Um, why aren't we trialing things like the, the, this is just destroying people's lives. Even if you don't care about people's lives, like it will destroy the economy. Like people are still getting this. This is not decreasing. Um, these are really, really substantial, tangible injuries that are happening. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. And and there's not enough respect for preventing this. The only way we know to prevent it, it for sure is just not to get COVID, of course. Right. And then, you know, things like vaccines help to some extent, the magnitude we don't know for sure, you know, maybe metformin helps, but, you know, prevention uh, and everyone's guard, not everyone, but the vast majority, you know, really let down at this point when there's not as much circulating virus as there has been. Now, another area which has really been lit up since our review was autoimmune diseases. So we know there's this common link in some people with long COVID. There's lots of autoantibodies and self-destruction that's ongoing. The immune system has gone haywire. But now we've learned, you know, this much higher incidence of rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and across, you know, every one of the autoimmune diseases. So the impact besides the brain, autoimmune diseases, and then the one that just blows me away, at the beginning of the pandemic, even in the first year, they were starting to see more people showing up with type 2 diabetes and say, ah, oh, well, it must be a coincidence. And now there are 12 large studies. Every single one goes through a, a significant increase in type 2 diabetes and, and possibly even uh, autoimmune diabetes, which makes sense. So this is the thing I wanted to clarify because a lot of people get mixed up about this, Hannah. There's the symptoms of long COVID some of which we reviewed, many of the long list we haven't. But then there's also the sequela to organ hits, like the uh, diabetes and immune system and the brain, and you know also obviously kidney and heart and on and on. Can you help differentiate? Because a lot of people get mixed up by all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we started out with symptoms because that's what we knew. That's what we were talking about. Um, but I do think it's helpful to start, and I, I do think it would be helpful to do a big review on um, on conditions. And that, that does include ME-CFS and dysautonomia, um, but also includes diabetes, includes heart attacks and strokes, heart, includes um, dementia risks. Um, and yeah, I think the, the difficulty with um, kind of figuring out what what percent of long COVID are each of these conditions is really biased by the fact that for that doctors can't recognize ME-CFS and dysautonomia, that it doesn't end up in the EHR data. And so we can't really do these large scale, like figuring out the percentage of what is what. Um, but I think like I, I saw someone describe 
long COVID recently as um, like a, a large scale neurocognitive impairment emergency, a lot or large scale cardiovascular um, event emergency. I think those are extremely accurate. Um, the immune system dysfunction is really severe. Um, I really would like to see the conversation start moving more toward the the conditions and the pathophysiologies um, based on what we're finding. Um, yeah, more than more than just the symptoms. Um, right, and then you know, there's this other aspect of the known unknown. So, with two other viruses, so for example, back in 1918 with influenza, it it took 15 years to see or more that this would lead to a significant increased risk of Parkinson's disease. And then with polio, the post-polio syndrome showed up up to 30 years later with profound um, uh, progressive muscular atrophy and, you know, falls and all sorts of uh, major neurologic uh, uh, hits that were due for from the original polio virus. And so, yeah, some of the things that we're learning here with long COVID hopefully will spill over to all these other post-infectious um, processes. But uh, I think what's emphasizing in our discussion is how much more we, we really do need to learn, how we desperately need uh, some treatments, how we desperately need to have the respect for this syndrome that it deserves, uh, which still isn't there. It's just it's so unfathomable to me that we still have people dissing it on a daily basis. And, and not, you know, a small minority, but actually a pretty strident uh, group uh, that's, that's not so small. Now, before we wrap up, what have I missed here, uh, Hannah, with you? Because this is a rarefied opportunity to have a sit down with you about what's going on in long COVID. And also um, to emphasize citizen science here, because this is, if there's anything I've ever seen in my career, to show the importance of citizen science. It's been the long COVID story. Uh, you as one of the leaders of it. So have I missed something? I feel like we actually covered a pretty good bit. I would say maybe um, just for people listening, emphasizing that long COVID is still happening. I think, you know, so many people that we see recently um, got long COVID after getting vaccinated or having a prior infection and just kind of relaxing all their precautions. And they're, they're angry. You know, the, the newer group of long COVID folks are angry because um, they were lied to that they were safe. And that's completely reasonable, um, you know, that it's still happening in, in one in 10 um, vaccinated Omicron infections is a huge deal. Um, and, and I think, yeah, just reemphasizing that, but um Overall, that yeah, you know, this is very serious. I think there's my my mo for Twitter really, honestly, despite all the the accusations of fear mongering, I really don't put extreme stuff online. But I really do believe that this is um, this is currently leading to you know higher rates of of heart attacks. I do believe that we will see a a wave of early onset dementia that is, honestly is happening already. Um, you know, happening in my friend group already. Um, and like you said, there, there's a lot of unknowns that can be speculated about the fact that we see EPV reactivation in so many people. Are we going to see a lot of onset uh, multiple sclerosis, mm -hmm. um, you know, lymphomas, um, uh, other EBV sequelae? Like the danger is not over. The danger is actually like 
pretty solidly um, so there's pretty solidly evidence for um, some some pretty serious things to come and um, you know I keep saying we got to get on top of it now but uh, well I I always um, the, unfortunately some some people don't realize it but the eternal optimist that we will get there it's taking too long but we got to put up the you know ratchet up the heat get uh, projects like recover and elsewhere in the world to go in high gear and you know really get to testing the promising candidates you so have aptly outlined here and in your writings um you know i think this has been an incredible relationship that i've been able to develop with you and your colleagues and um, i've learned so much from you and uh, i will continue to be following you i hope everyone listening if they don't already follow you and and others that are trying to keep us up to speed, which, uh, you know, just this week, again, there was a Swiss study, two-year follow-up, showing um, that the number of people that were still affected significantly with long COVID symptoms at two years was 18%. That's a lot of folks. And they were unvaccinated, but still, I mean, in order to have two-year follow-up, you're going to start, you see a lot of people who, before the advent of vaccines. So um, this, if you look at the data, the research carefully, and it gets better quality as time goes on, because we have control groups, we have match controls, we have, you know, hopefully the beginning of randomized trials of treatments, um, we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully get some light. And uh, part of the reason we're going to get there is because of you and others, you know, getting us fully aware, you know, keeping track of things, not hoping people and the research community will be accountable and not just pass off the same old stuff, which is not really understanding the condition. I mean, how can you start to really improve it if you don't even understand it? And who are you going to turn to to understand it? Uh, you don't you don't just look at, you know, MRI studies or immune lab studies. You got to talk to the folks who who know it and know it Absolutely. so well, unfortunately. All right. Well, um, this has been hopefully one of many more conversations we'll have in the future and at some point to celebrate some progress, which is what we so desperately need. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure.